So we've been looking at the Psalms a lot. It reminds me of something that happened in my, uh, my house early on when just after I got married, we got an ice maker. Have I ever told you any stories about my ice maker? There, there's, a, there's a lot. Oh, I found the Apple TV remote, by the way. You know what you know it was? It was a place that I looked twice and I did not find it. It was like directly, directly under the couch cushion where I sit. And I found it like a month later. So I looked and I did not find it. I think it was like hiding somewhere and then it fell down and like fell where it was. Anyway, not talking about the Apple TV. I had an ice maker. I've not had one ice maker. I've not had two ice makers. I've had three of the exact same ice maker. Have I ever told you about this? No? Good, good. I wasn't sure. Um, The first one that we got was great. It was so cool. It makes pellet ice. You know, like at Chick-fil-A? You get the Chick-fil-A ice or Canes. It's like, you know, it's good ice, right? You can chew on it. It's like the big bricks of ice. I chew a lot of ice, and my dentist says that's a bad thing for my teeth. Like, literally, last time he said, you need to stop, and whatever. Uh, (laughs) Sermon for another day. But I, I love this ice maker. Problem was, this ice maker did not love us back very much because after like nine months of using it, it broke. Like it just broke. It stopped working. It stopped making ice. And we were just at a time in our life where we were just busy and we were like, oh, we won't deal with it. We won't worry about it. So it sat on the shelf for like two months and we didn't really do anything about it. Getting up to about the year mark when we got married and we're like, you know what? This thing might have a warranty. Maybe we should find out if it has a warranty. And guess what? It did. Within the first year, we sent it back to the company, and they sent us back a brand new ice maker. Now, this thing is heavy. It's big. It's a massive package that came. So we were really excited. We got another one for free. Well, that ice maker was also great until it wasn't, because guess what happened with that ice maker? Nine months and it broke. broke. (laughs) Basically the same thing. But this time, we had even tried harder. We were like cleaning it because we found out it broke because, you know, we weren't cleaning it the right way. So Alexander like made sure every week she was cleaning it. And it was crazy. And it still broke. And it was so bad. We actually took it over to my parents' house and my dad tried to fix it. He like took it apart and he tried to fix it. And, you know, when he gets his mind on something, he's going to do it or it's not going to happen. And we were wondering what happened. And then a couple weeks later, when we didn't hear anything back, we walk up on our porch, and there's a brand new ice maker that he bought for us because he took it apart and couldn't put it back together. Um, <laughs> so he's got us an ice maker. So we're on ice maker number three, okay? Um, and the thing that we've done different this time is we didn't just clean it because we cleaned it before. Now we're using filtered water, right? Because before the, the gunk, the calcium was just like building up from the water, you know, like on your faucet where it gets a little, you know, white stuff. That's the calcium from the water. We've been cleaning it, right? We've been not only cleaning it, we also bought the cleaning solution, the clean solution that's expensive. And that's the kind of thing that a person like me doesn't buy. Because I'm like, they, they are selling it on their own, but there's no way we can clean it with something else. But I've learned, we've been humbled over the course of two different ice makers that Uh, If the designer says this is how you should do it, we've kind of been humbled into saying, okay, that's how the designer designed it, and this is what it takes to run well, I guess that's what we need. That same humility is what we need to approach God with. God is our designer. He's our creator, and sometimes we run on things, and we use things, and we use the good gifts that he's given us in ways that are not intended to be used, so much so that for most people, how they live their life is they try to be happy with all the gifts that God gives. 
And although God is really gracious to give good gifts, the purpose of those gifts is not that we take those things and make them our God and make the good gifts that God gives us our idol. The problem is that's what most people in this world do. I just want to warn you tonight, and we're going to look at a passage that talks all about making the main things made things, but before we even do that, I just want to warn you and make sure you are not a person that's trying to find fulfillment and happiness and your life in something that God never intended you to find your life in. We need to find it in him alone. We need to have a relationship with God. That is what's going to be most fulfilling for his people. That's how he designed us. So grab a Bible and look at Psalm chapter 63, which is going to tell us that very thing. We need to look to God to make us happy. We need to look to God for these things because this passage is going to say a relationship with God is better than life. Better than life. Now, you can't really say many things are better than life. This is Psalm chapter 63. If you open up to your Bibles and just turn left a little bit, you'll find that big book of Psalms. Psalm 63. This one's written by David. We've been looking at a lot of Psalms by David. This one says it was written while he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now, there's a lot of times in his life that he spent time in the wilderness. So not in the cities where most people live, outside the cities. If you're avoiding people, <laughs> that could be for a lot of reasons, but he was avoiding people often in his life because people were trying to kill him. David did not have the easiest life. There's actually two big times in his life when he was run out of town on the run from two different people that wanted to kill him and wanted to be in charge instead of him. First was King Saul when David wasn't even king yet. He was anointed as king, but he wasn't king yet. There's another time when his son Absalom took the throne. Remember that in the book of 2 Samuel? where Absalom, his son, went and told everybody, hey, you know, things would be a lot better here if I was the king. You know, if I was the king, things would be going a lot better here. So much so that he stole the hearts of the people in the kingdom. What happened was David, the king, had to run out of town in order to not be killed by all the people that Absalom hired to take him out. So he runs away from his own son. He leaves his house behind. He leaves his city behind. He leaves it all behind. And I think that's the context we find ourselves in right now. When he is in the wilderness of Judah, it's probably because he is running away from his son who wants to kill him, right? That's never happened to any of us here, but I want you to imagine you're him. What would you be feeling? What would you be thinking? What would your thoughts about God be when your world was falling apart? Now read what he says. Psalm 63, verse 1. He talks to God. He says, oh God, you are my God. He knows God. He's like, God is my God. He's not just a God who's out there. No, he's my God. I have a relationship with him. Look what he says next. Earnestly, I seek you. What does the word earnest mean? It means like intensely, right? It's what you do when you like something. When you get passionate about something, you're all about it, right? When you binge watch a show, you're passionate about it. You just have to watch the next episode and the next episode. When you get excited about sports or when you get excited about a subject in school, if you're a nerd, right? You get all excited about it, right? Okay. That's what he's saying. My earnest desire is to know God. I want to know him. It's funny. What did we study last week? What did it say in Psalm 53? It said, who seeks after God? No one seeks after God. Remember that? Now we have David saying, I'm seeking after God with all my heart. It's interesting. Something's happened to David. David's not just your average person. David is a person who's been saved by God. We said that nobody seeks God on their own, but once God seeks a person and once they're in a right relationship with him, guess what we start to see happen in people's hearts? They're seeking God. That's what David says right here. When he's running away from home, he's seeking God. Look what he says next. My soul, 
my inside, who I am on the inside, it thirsts for you. Right? It was hot today. It's going to be hot tomorrow. How do you feel when you're thirsty? Right? You feel tired. You feel like you have no energy. Your, your mouth doesn't feel good. You're just like, oh, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm sweaty. Give me something to drink. You need sustenance. He says, what I'm thinking is I need God. He says, my flesh, my body faints for you. Like my soul and my body. Everything about me needs God right now. He says, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And David probably could have opened his eyes, looked around and seen a dry and weary land because that's where he was. He was in the desert, in the wilderness. Look at verse two. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. He can't see God right now because he's away from the sanctuary. But he says, I remember there were times when I was worshiping you, God, and in those times when I was worshiping you in the sanctuary with all these other people who love you, I, it's like I saw you. I saw something of your power and glory. Not with my eyes, but I did perceive something about you, God. He says, I was seeing your power and your glory. Verse number three, because your steadfast love, look what it says, is better than life. My lips will praise you. He's scared that he's gonna die. And he says, there's something better than life. I'd rather have God's steadfast love than even live for another week. I'd rather know God and be known by God than even make it out of this trial alive. It's better than life. He says, because of that, I'm going to praise God no matter what. Verse 4. He says, so I will bless you as long as I live. And for him, he's thinking it could be a week. It could be a month. It could be two more days. But as long as I live, I'm going to praise God. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. That posture of prayer, that posture of worship. Verse number five, he says, my soul, who I am on the inside, will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I thought we just said in verse number one, what did he feel like? Look what he said in verse one, my soul thirsts for you. It's like I was thirsty, I needed something, I was really, 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 really desiring something, but he says, I will be satisfied. It's like I was really, really hungry. You ever get really hungry? I was hungry today. And then at staff lunch today, we had Olive Garden. Oh, it's a lot of food, okay? I ate a lot of food for lunch today. And then I had a lot of food for dinner, right? I'm, I don't need food for a long time, okay? I'm good. I could probably go without food for a couple of days. Um, that's how much food I've had today. But you know when you eat and you just feel like, oh, that was satisfying. I was so hungry before. I was starving. And now I'm satisfied. He says this, I feel like I need God so much but I know I will be satisfied. Is he satisfied yet? Not yet. It's like he's hungry, but he sits down and says, but look, the meal is spread right before me. I'm gonna be satisfied. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you. Verse number six, what does he have to do in order to be satisfied? What's the main thing he does here? It says, when I remember you. That's the key here. The key to David getting through this hard time is remembering God. It's remembering him, remembering his promises, remembering his word, it's remembering him. When does he do it? He says, I remember you upon my bed, wherever he went to sleep, which they probably weren't very nice beds in the wilderness. I, mean, I don't even know if he had a tent, right? He might have slept outside. We don't even know. He says, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, at midnight, at two in the morning, at four in the morning. He says, I'm up at all these different times. But guess what I'm doing in the middle of the night? When I can't sleep, I'm thinking about God. Like the time that's the most scary in the middle of the night when he could be attacked by the army that his son created. What is he doing? He says, I'm, I'm thinking about God. 
when I wake up. When I'm scared, I'm going to think about God. Verse number seven, look what it says. He's talking to God, and he says, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy, even though he was going to get attacked. He says, I'll sing for joy. Why? Verse number eight, because my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Like I'm held in this peace that doesn't make sense with what's going on outside, but I have this inner peace because I know that God knows me and I know God. And my soul like clings to him. Right? It's what happens when I stick my finger um, right, right next to Eden's hand and Eden just grabs my finger, right? It's like a big, uh, it's like a, I don't know, to a baby hand, it's, it's huge, right? But she just grabs, if you stick your finger right near her, guess what she'll do? She'll just grab it, right? And she'll hold on to it, and you'll try to pull it away, and she'll just keep grabbing it. And wherever you, you take it, she's just hanging on to it, right? She clings to it, right? This is like the picture of your soul is like hanging on to God. I understand that's figurative language, right? Your soul can't hang on to God, literally. It's like, well, wh- wh- where do I grab? His shoulder, his arm? Like, wh- wh- how do I hang on to God? It's not in, in a physical sense, but that's how it feels when you're going through something that's very hard, but you pray and you trust God and you say, I'm trusting you with all my heart. And it's like my soul is just hanging on to you, God. That's what it feels like. Because of that, God's right hand upholds you. It's like you're held strong. Verse number nine. Now he's going to talk about the people that were making his life difficult. Look at verse nine. It says, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword they shall be the portion for jackals, right? These animals that would eat people's bodies when they're dead. Like, whoa, <laughs> that's scary. Saying those, the bodies of the people that are trying to go after me, they're going to be fed to them. That's actually exactly what happened. Later on, when Absalom was killed, you know what Absalom was killed by was a sword. This idea that I know that God will take care of my enemies. I don't need to fight against them. God is going to take care of them for me is exactly what's played out. Now look at verse 11. He says, but the king shall rejoice in God. And not just the king, because you might be thinking, oh, well, David's got a special relationship with God. Look what it says. And all who swear by him, all who are loyal to God, shall exult. We're going to celebrate. There's going to be a time where everyone who's God's people cheers for God. Why? Because God saves him. God's going to do something good. God's going to protect him. God's going to give him peace. What about the people who said all these bad things about David? What about the people who at that very moment were saying David was an evil king? He was so bad, they lied about him, right? Look what he says will happen to the people who lie about him. He says, for the mouths of all liars will be stopped. God's going to end their complaints one day. This passage is a strong passage, and I think it comes in the context where David is scared when he is needy, right? He's not in his palace anymore. He's not on the throne like he used to be. He needs God, and all that drives him to trust God. The question for you and I is, when times are tough, what happens to your faith in God? Does it get stronger? Does your heart cling to God? Or do you kind of go away from God? Or do you blame God? You could ask it another way. When times are good and you have what you need and you feel like you don't need anything else and you're super happy, does your soul cling to God? Or do you kind of take a step back from God and say, oh God, I don't need you anymore? That's a hard two questions for us to answer. But for all of us, I think when we look at this text, we see that we need to seek God. Like we need to be like David here and seek God with all of our hearts. We need to know that he is the one who's designed us. God has designed us. He knows how to make us happy and he knows what won't make us happy in those hard times. In verse one, he is so clear that he seeks God. Another way of saying that is he worships God. He thinks God is the most important person. 
He thinks God is the best. The question for you is, is that your mindset? Not just when times are tough, but all the time. What is your mindset when it comes to God? Or put it another way, what do you worship most? What do you think is most important? That's point number one. I'll let you write that down. Figure out what you worship the most. Figure out what it is that you worship the most. Because everybody does this. I think the default setting, if you don't do anything, you think, I'm not a worshiper, I don't worship. Well, you probably ascribe the most worth to yourself and your, your own ideas and your own strength or your own intellect. You think, I don't worship anything because I just do whatever I want to do. Well, that's called worshiping yourself. I asked you a question last week. Um, if you could do anything you wanted with no consequences, what would you do? Right? And I said that question, if you answer that honestly, reveals what your heart wants. I want to ask you another question that's similar. The question that is, if, you, if there's something that you couldn't go without, like I could not live without this, what would it be? Right? I just couldn't live without this. You know, if I, if I didn't have my friends, I, I couldn't go without my friends. Or, you know, I, I couldn't go without my phone, not for like two days, right? I, I couldn't go without my phone, right? Maybe you think, well, we couldn't go without our car, right? We need our car. If we didn't have our car, we couldn't, couldn't go without it, right? What are the things that you couldn't go without? Now, I understand all those things that I just mentioned are things that like it's nice to have, but you, you could go without it. Like you don't like need it, need it. Like should you have it? May, yeah, great. But like, you could live without it. You could survive without it. Question for you and I is like, what could we not go without? The answer to that question for everyone, whether you know God or not, is you could not go without God. You could not go without God. But the problem is, although you might nod your head and think, oh yeah, that's probably true. Many of us live like God's not there. That's what we talked about last week, right? The people who say in their heart, there's no God, right? That's why I think this psalm and the last psalm, or that we studied last time, are pretty connected. That theme is connected. But I want you to write this verse down. Jesus talks about this very thing. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24, he talks about what people value, what people worship. Like he asks us a question, what do you care about most? Matthew 6, 19, Jesus tells the people, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. Don't don't try to have as much stuff as you can here and now, because guess what happens to the stuff you have here and now? Well, moth and rust destroy, and thieves will break in and steal. This is Matthew 16, 19. It says, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth or rust destroy, or thieves, don't, they don't break in and steal. So he says that. He says, hey, you should care more about the next life than this life, okay? Okay, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? What he says in verse 21. Matthew 6, 21 says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? Where your treasure is, what do you value most? Do you value your phone the most? Do you value your friends the most? Like wherever that thing is that you value the most, maybe it's not something tangible. Maybe it's not like a piece of technology or a video game or something like that. Maybe it's something more like your reputation or something more like people thinking you're, you're funny. Or maybe it's more like people thinking you're nice. Or maybe it's people thinking that you're important or successful. Or maybe it's your sport. Or like, it doesn't have to be like a literal thing. It could be like whatever it is where your ultimate value is. This is where your treasure is. That is where your heart is going to be also. It sounds unrelated, but the next verse, listen to what he goes on to say. Verse 22. This is Matthew 6, 22. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Have you ever thought about what that means? 
The eye is the lamp of the body. Like it's the thing that lets the light in and out. It's the, it's the thing that tells you what's really going on in the rest of it. So, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If you are looking at things that are good and righteous, says, well, your, your, your body is going to do what's good and righteous. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Right? If what you're doing is filling your mind with darkness, it shouldn't surprise you if you start worshiping other things. It shouldn't surprise you if you just are so into what the world thinks about you, if all that you're looking at all day long is what the world has to offer, it shouldn't surprise you. That's what Jesus says. Right? Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And you know how things become the treasure of your heart? What's the pathway? Well, he says right here, it's your eyeball. Right? It's what you look at. It's what you spend time consuming. It's the videos you watch. It's the music that you listen to. It's your eyes, your ears, your senses. It's what you take in. That's going to shape what's the master of your heart. The reason I use that phrase, master of your heart, is because the next verse says, no one can serve two masters. This is verse 24. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. He's saying, you can't really love two things that are opposed to each other. You can't really make it your ultimate aim to love and serve two different things. One of those is going to win in the end. When push comes to shove, one of those will win. You might say, wait a minute, what, what about if you have a family? And, and, well, remember what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, he says, when I come, I'm going to divide families, even people who are really close. I'm going to divide them because if their allegiance, if their devotion isn't to me, if it's to something else, well, then they're going to feel divided. That's why Jesus said, if you don't even look down on or hate even your own life in Luke 9, he says, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Like, he's asking for all of your worship and all of your attention, all your devotion. That's a big thing that God asks for. He says, no one can serve two masters. And then what he says, the thing that Jesus finishes out by saying, he says, you can't serve God and money, right? And that's really what he's talking about there, money. But it doesn't have to be money for you. Fill in the blank. You cannot serve God and popularity. You just can't do it. If your goal in this life is to be popular, you cannot serve God. You can't. If that's your goal, to be famous or popular or liked or even successful, if that's your chief aim and you want to serve God on the side, you're not going to do both. You got to pick who your one focus is going to be on, ultimately. I'm not saying you can't do sports. I'm not saying you can't be successful. I'm not saying you can't get good grades. I'm not saying you can't watch YouTube. I'm just saying that where your main love and main focus is going to be is going to determine the whole course of your life. David shows that. He says, I seek God who is my God. I earnestly seek him. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Just wonder if you've ever felt that way or ever thought that. Some of you have. Some of you who do know God, you know what it feels like to really seek God. You need God. And you're, you're telling him that. You're praying about that. I just am afraid when I'm looking at a passage like this, I just won't want to say, hey, everybody, you know, we should seek God. Because I know that for some of you, you've never done that. You've never felt that way. Jesus said in John chapter 4, says, God is seeking worshipers. He wants people who are going to worship him. It says, in spirit and in truth. 
People who aren't just saying, oh, I worship God. No, people who actually know him and worship him. The danger is in the Old Testament, we saw a whole bunch of people, and we're reading about it in the Daily Bible reading, the book of Judges, people who are abandoning God. Like they were supposed to serve God, and now they're serving whatever they want to serve. All right, today, especially in Judges 18, it was like people doing whatever they wanted to do. They didn't even care about God's rules. But I think about a passage that I'd love for you to write down, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where God says something about people who choose other things as their God and choose to worship other things instead of him. He says something pretty strong. He says, my people have committed two evils. This is Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They've done two things wrong. But these two things are actually connected. One, they have forsaken me. They don't care about me anymore, even though I gave them life. I made them a nation. I did all those things. He's talking about these people in the Old Testament. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. And he says, I am the fountain of living waters. I provide everything for them. Every good gift comes from me. And the second thing that they've done that's wrong is they've dug in the ground and they've made broken cisterns. That was where they, people used to put water. He basically said, imagine you need water. You're thirsty. You've got two options. You've got this fountain that water's always coming out of, a fountain that does not have a faucet, right? That's what these fountains were like. They just constantly bubbled up. And it was like, anytime you want a water, just stick your hand in there and boom, throw yourself back some water. Stick your face in there and just drink fresh water all the time. He says, you've left that. That's who I am. I'm the fountain of living waters. And what you did was you went to the beach, you started digging around with your little shovel thing, and you decided to put all the water you have and just kind of pour it in the little sand holes you made. Cannot hold any water. No. He says, you're pouring all your water and all your stuff. You're trying to find all your happiness in these tiny little tiny things when you've left me and you're trying to find your happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction in these little tiny idols. He compares it to like you're pouring water in the sand at the beach. And what happens when you pour water in the sand at the beach? It doesn't even stay there. It just drains out. It just goes down even further. I don't know where it goes. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But you know what I'm talking about, right? Here's the idea. Um, when you and I choose to find our happiness in something other than God, that's what we're doing. Okay. Now, David goes on and he says, I've looked to God. I think God's love is better than life. I'm going to be satisfied in God, all that stuff. I'd love for you to write this down for point number two. I want you to admit that only God can satisfy your soul. When we're talking about what your soul needs and what your body needs, like only God can actually do that. Remember the beginning, my ice maker. It was really only the cleaning solution that that dumb company makes that it just has to be that one kind of cleaning solution. That's the one that works, right? All the other stuff we tried didn't work, but that one did. Well, the owner, the designer, he said, this is what, how it works. Well, that's what God says for us. Only God can really satisfy us. God's love is better than life. Just like in point number one, I don't want to assume that you think that. Some of you probably do agree with that, but others of you probably don't even believe that statement, that God's love is better than life, right? Fill in the blank on anything that you could ever have or want. Is God's love really better than that? David says it is. David doesn't just say it by theory or just thinking like, oh, I think this would be true. He says it by experience. He knows God's love is better than life. That's why some people, if you're a Christian, you probably have understood that. You understand what it is for your sins to be forgiven, and you know that that's God's love, and God's love is better than life. 
Because even if you were to die, even if you were to lose everything just like Job did in a day, you would know that God loves you, he cares for you, he's gonna take you to be in his heavenly home one day and everything will be okay. Everything's gonna be okay. That love is better than life. Life fades away, people die, jobs get lost, money goes away, moth and rust destroy, but God's love is better than life. Paul said in the New Testament, Philippians 1.20, he says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And here's what he says. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what he thought. That's what Christians should think. That's what I want you to walk away tonight thinking. God's love is better than life. To live, I'm gonna do it for Christ. And if I were to even die, that would be okay. You can only say that if you know God. You can only say that if you trust God's steadfast love. You can only say that if you've repented of your sins and believe that Jesus has forgiven you. Those are the only people that can really say that. I don't want you to walk away and lie to yourself, thinking, oh, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, right? No, I want you to walk away confident that God has forgiven your sins. That's what's most important. I want you to think about how you feel when you really want something. Right. Something's on your Amazon wish list or you know, it's your birthday coming around or it's a new piece of technology. How, how does that desire go from you don't care about it to you have to have it? How does it go? Right. Usually starts with you becoming aware of it. Someone tells you about it or you see it. Right. It's why you know, Instagram ads and Facebook ads and all the ads that are going on online are really powerful because they can show you something and say, you should buy this. Right, whatever the last thing was for you that you just really wanted and you bought or maybe you had it bought for you as a gift, it started with you seeing it or hearing about it. You wanted it. Then you thought about it. Right? You saw it. You thought about it. You remembered it. It kept, you know, kept thinking about it. You kept looking it up online. You kept reading articles about it. You kept reading reviews on it. You wanted to see if it was the exact right thing for you. And then you looked at other ones that were kind of like that. And then you settled on that one, right? That was the dress or that was the video game or that was the piece of technology or, or that was you know, whatever, the sports equipment. Like that, you settled on it, right? And then you got it. And how was that? Well, it was pretty cool, right? And then it wasn't so cool. And then it was like, oh yeah, that was, that was really cool. Now it's just something I have right? You saw it. You wanted it. You remembered it. Then when you got it, you enjoyed it for a little while, and then it faded. That is like the natural progression of how everything that we want goes. But that's not how it works with God. The initial steps are the same. What does David first say? Verse number two, I've looked to God. I see God. What does that mean? Does he with his physical eyes? He doesn't. He's not even in the sanctuary, right? Where is he? He's in the wilderness. How does he see the sanctuary? He closes his eyes and he remembers. He goes back in his mind to think about God's power, to think about what God has done. He remembers. Then he says God's love is steadfast. His steadfast love is better than life. Then he says, I'm gonna praise God for it. That same passage in John 4, when Jesus said, God is seeking worshipers, earlier in the passage, he was talking to a lady by a well and they were having water and He wanted some water from her, and she drew some water for him. And he said to this lady, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus was not just some miracle worker or some person who came around doing magic tricks. He says, what I could give you would make you completely satisfied. You wouldn't even be thirsty again. Wow. He says, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. It's the same picture as Jeremiah 2. 
It's like there's this fountain of water. That's what I could give you. A relationship with God is that fountain of water. You might say, well, I think there's a lot of things that I haven't tried in the world that maybe I could try for a little bit. All right, what, what if I just, what if I kind of believe what you're saying, John, and like, okay, I hear that, that you think it's better to like know God and worship God, but like you haven't tried everything that's in the world. You might say that about me. You might say, well, you didn't try all the things I want to try, so you don't even know if serving God is better, okay? Grant you that. Well, there's a guy in the Bible who did try whatever you want, like whatever you think is cool, right? If you're a nerd and you think, if I just knew more than everybody else, that might make me happy. This guy tried that. This guy who said, I'm going to be the most successful, and he was. This guy who said, I'm going to be the most rich. I'm going to have more stuff, and he got it. And the guy who said, I want the relationships with all the people I can, and he had it. All the popularity, all the ladies, he had it all. Literally, he had it all. Dude was married to 700 women, okay? Had everything he wanted. Solomon, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 9, here's what he says. He says, so I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. I had all this wisdom. I was, I was doing really well. And whatever my eye desired, I did not keep it from them. Everything I wanted, I got. Every last thing. Nothing did I look at that I said, nope, I I'm not going to have that. Uh, I'll save that for you. No, he, he took, 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 got whatever he wanted, it says. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my work. And this was my, work, this was my reward for all my work. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all worthless. It was all vanity. Didn't make me happy. This is all a striving after wind, like trying to catch, how much wind can you catch in your hand? Like striving after wind. I could, it was like nothing when it was over. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That book also says that there's nothing new under the sun. That you can say, oh, I'm trying something that my last generation never tried, and my parents didn't have this. You could try and try and try, but the Bible says nothing is new under the sun. And if you want to try to find happiness out there in what the world has to offer, if you try that, you're going to find out that it didn't make you happy. You can learn the lesson now and do it the, the smart way, or you can learn it the hard way. Many people never learn the lesson at all. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or they shall be satisfied. Look, I don't know what it is for you. Like, I don't know what you would fill in the blank with there, right? For you, it's, it's different than it is for me and maybe from the person sitting next to you. Um, but God's word is pretty clear about this. If you think that's gonna make you happy and it doesn't, it's not related to God, it, it won't. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be happy. They'll be satisfied. They'll feel full. You know, there's times when people look to God, Right? You might think about this. One of the times that you pray the most is when you didn't study for the test. And you find out, oh, the test is right now. Shoot up a little prayer, right? God, please help me with this test. Oh, I don't want to fail. Right? Uh, maybe you, you pray when you get sick, right? Because you're used to your body working fine and you're used to, you know, not having a sore throat and you're, you're used to, you know, feeling normal and your stomach doesn't feel weird. But now it feels weird. Now it doesn't feel right. So you pray, right? You go to God and you ask God for help. Maybe you, you pray when people that you love get hurt. Maybe people you love are in the hospital. 
then you start being very prayerful because you're like, I need something from God, especially when it feels like it's beyond your control, right? That's when you're like, okay, I'm really going to God now. Well, that's what happens to a lot of people, um, and that's not all bad, right? God uses those things to draw us to, to know him. The, the question for us, and I asked this earlier, but when, when times are bad, do you go to God or do you run from God? Do you go to God or do you blame God? Because a lot of people do that. When things are bad, they say, God, you should have fixed this. You should have not made this happen. God, why is this happening? They blame God, right? Um, other people, when times are bad, they trust God. They say, God, I don't know why this is happening. I would never plan this, but I trust you. I trust you. I know that you're going to do something good through all this. In Psalm 63, verse 6, the key is at the beginning of verse 6. He says he knows that he will be satisfied in God when he remembers. He has to remember something. He remembers you. He remembers God. In the night when things are scary, when he can get attacked, he remembers who God is. And that's what gets him through it all. Point number three, I want you to write this down. I want you to remember God's promises in hard times. Remember God's promises in hard times. The word meditate shows up, which I always want to stop there and remind you, meditate doesn't mean what the yoga people say it means, right? Meditate does not mean going um and emptying your mind, right? What meditating means is actually filling your mind. Some, some people use the illustration, it's like it's chewing. It's like what cows do on their grass. <laughs> That's weird. But you know, they like chew on their grass for like 10 minutes or whatever, something weird right? There's like chew, 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 chew. It's like what your blender does. It just chews up something, right? Meditating. The idea of just constantly chewing on something in your mind, repeating it over and over again, repeating it over and over again. Some people can benefit this when they, when they want to memorize the Bible. What they need to do is like take that same sentence and just repeat it over and over again, repeat it over and over again. It just gets stuck in their mind. Remember Psalm 1? We studied that a long time ago, but it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, scoffers. But his delight, his love is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he chews on it. He meditates on it. He's just thinking about it day and night. Right? He's remembering God's promises, doing what God's word says, thinking about it. For you, you might look at this passage and say, well, David was in a lot of trouble. He had a lot of enemies. I don't have that many enemies. Hopefully. Um, you don't have that many people who want to kill you. That's good. Um, congratulations. Um, but the Bible says that you and I still do have enemies. We are in a battle, God's word says. Ephesians 6 says there's a battle that's going on that you need to put your armor on every day. Every day. So you got to put this armor on. But this battle is not one with tanks and bullets and guns. It's not even a battle with words. It says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, not against people, not against armies that are trying to attack us, but we wrestle, we fight in a battle against these spiritual forces that want you to sin, that want you not to read your Bible tomorrow morning, that want you to lie to your parents to cover up the fact that you cheated at school. They want you to be a bad friend. They want you to be disrespectful to your parents. They want you to treat your siblings like trash. They want you to do these things. And you're in a battle and you're going home tonight and you're going to leave this sermon, and you're going to walk into that small group room, and you're going to be in a battle. So you do have enemies. We can't say, oh, this doesn't apply to me at all. I don't have any enemies. 
We do. I want to remind you of some things. If I'm saying, remember God's promises in hard times, I want to give you some verses, just four. There's so many more I could have given you, but just four verses that I'd love for you to write down that can be so helpful and comforting when times are hard. Promises that you can latch onto in your mind and you can repeat over and over again. The first one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. We looked at this passage a long time ago in the beginning of the summer. I think it's probably the first sermon, actually, of the year. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. But Deuteronomy 4, 7 says this. It asks the question. It says, For what great nation is there that has a God that is so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Okay? There's something built in there. Who has God? And who has a God like we have that's so close when we call upon God who will help us? Well, only the people that know God. If you're a Christian, then you do. When people out there, people who don't know God, they don't. They don't have a God. That's why they freak out. That's why they get so anxious. That's why they, they just need so many people to make their lives happy. If they don't have friends, they'll just fall apart. Right? You, you, you don't technically need all those things right? if you have God. It's nice to have. It's a comfort. But you don't need, need it. Just like you don't need a phone. You don't need a car. It's nice to have, but you don't need it. Because we have a God who's there when we call, who doesn't leave. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. That's the second passage. Isaiah 57, 15. Kind of going in biblical order here. We looked at this passage too. I don't know if you remember that. We looked at it when we were studying Isaiah. I'm trying to give you ones that you might be familiar with. It says, for thus says the one who's high and lifted up. Who is that? Who's the one that's high and lifted up? Well, that's God, right? Here's what God says. It says, the one who inhabits eternity, the one who made everything, whose name is holy. He's perfect. Here's what God says. I dwell in a high and holy place. I'm holy. I'm separate from you all. But there's another place that I come to. There's another place that I dwell. I also live with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, someone who's hurting and comes to me, someone who's hurting and prays to God because I live with them too. I spend time with them. What do I do? I do all that to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The contrite means someone who's repentant of their sin. Because you want to repent of your sin? You want to spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes at home, no music on, just thinking about how you've sinned and confessing that sin to God and telling him how sorry you are and how you shouldn't have done it? Well, then that's, you're going to be a person that God's going to be with. You want to know where God's going to spend time? Who, who is God going to be with in a personal way? Well, it's, it's the ones who are contrite. It's the ones who have a lowly spirit. That's a promise that you can rely on, that God will be with you when you have a lowly spirit, when you repent of sin. Another verse for you to write down, Romans 8, 38. Romans 8, 38, 39 says, For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present right now, nor things to come, not your future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any separation, anything like that, or nothing else in all of creation. I'm confident that none of that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And let me add on to that, that is better than life, which is what Psalm 63.3 says. Nothing can separate you. So you're saying that when times are tough and when, even when I've sinned, that God's love can't be separated from me? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Are you saying that 
when things don't go well and, and, and things don't turn out well at school that, like you wanted them to, or your friends betray you, or, or things are bad at home, or maybe your parents are fighting, are you saying that God's love will never separate from me? If I'm in Christ Jesus, what's the answer? Yes, it will never get separated from you. God will never leave you, forsake you. Another more practical one maybe for you to think about, especially when times are tough. Last verse for you to write down, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, 3. Paul thanks God for something. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. It says, here's what God does. He comforts us in all of our afflictions, every last one of them so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So like when you go through something hard, here's why God did that. Because someone else is going to go through that. Someone else probably who's close to you, and guess what God's going to use you for next time? He's going to say, you're going to go help them. You're going to go be a comfort now. Why am I going through something hard? Well, one of the reasons is, the scripture says, because God's going to use that, because you're going to come alongside another girl who went through the same exact thing. You're going to come along a guy who's been through that exact hard thing that you've been through. And you're going to be able to come alongside them and know what they feel like. It says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, talking about people who are persecuted for being Christians. So through Christ, we also share abundantly in comfort too. We suffer with Christ because Christ suffered because he was righteous. It says, we're suffering too because we're Christians. Just like Jesus suffered, we're suffering. But guess what that means? We also share in the comfort of Jesus. We don't just share in the sufferings of Jesus. He doesn't withhold the comfort either. Those are just four passages that are helpful. Because I think what they do is what verse 8 says, which verse 8 says, my soul clings to you, God, and your right hand upholds me. It feels good to be lifted up. It feels good to be supported. Reminds me of something I was reading this week. Uh, actually, I watched a video about this. Do you know that the city of New Orleans is below sea level? Have you ever heard about this? So it's a city in Louisiana that's literally a bowl, okay? Imagine the water level all around. There's a lake that runs next to it. There's the, the Gulf of Mexico, and there's also the Mississippi River, right? These huge bodies of water that literally the city sits like a little bowl underneath it. The water level is literally higher than the city. You might know this because they get all these hurricanes down in Louisiana, what happens is the wind will blow really hard and the wind off of the ocean and off of the lake and the water levels will just go up and down, up and down. And what happens is if the protection around that city, they have all these walls and levees and gates and flood walls that they literally build in the city to stop the water. They have all these like stopping points everywhere. What happens a lot of times is when there's a big flood, those walls cannot keep that water from coming in. So times like in 2005, Hurricane Katrina, it was like 80% of the city was completely underwater. I mean, this is a city with millions of people in it, okay, and a lot of cities that surround it. Some parts of the city were up to 20 feet underwater. Since then, the city and the federal government have spent $14.6 billion in building new systems. It's basically there's all these um, flood walls that they build, and they just continue to build them higher. And there are these pumps that basically they take massive amounts of water and they just pump it out of the city. The problem is it doesn't always work. In fact, there's times when none of the pumps are working. It's like, well, what good are the pumps if they don't work? 
what good are the, the flood walls if they don't work? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. It's just not very consistent because they all fail. And there's times when even if they were all working, the, the overwhelming currents of that water and the wind and the waves would be just so big that there's nothing that's going to keep that water from coming in. It's coming in one way or another because those things will fade. They're just not going to work completely. It has a good picture of how it feels sometimes to live in this world. It feels like there's floods. It feels like there's these things that like, there's no way any flood wall, any levee, any pumps could ever keep this out. There's no way that anyone could protect me in my heart from all that's going on. That's not true. This passage, if any passage says this, this passage is clear. The ones who trust God be protected. Maybe their outsides won't go well. Maybe David will be killed by Absalom. And that's not what happens, but he doesn't know. That's why he says, my stead, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips, they're going to praise you as long as I live. Whether that's a week, two weeks, a month, whatever. I'm going to praise God. Because God is a support that does not fail. If your support is in your status, you could lose it really fast. If your support is in your money, it goes away really fast. If your support is in your friends, they will abandon you really fast. If your support is even in your family, they're not always going to be around, and they might not always support you. Your support needs to be in God. He is the only, only flood walls that are going to keep out things from your heart. He's, he's the only one. All the other flood walls and pumps and all the things that would keep water out of the city, all that's going to fail. God is the only one that will protect us forever. That's why God is better than life. The question is, what is better than life? That's the title. The answer is God. God's love is better than life. And that's what we have to remember. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for your word that gives us instruction on how godly people before us have thought about you. Pray that we take something away from this, that you are better than life, that all the things that we want in this life that I think might make us happy, just pray that we'd realize they, they ultimately won't. Pray that your spirit would convict hearts right now. We trust that he is doing that. Just pray that he would persuade many of us to trust you and not be scared. Some of us are going through some really hard times, and I just pray that we wouldn't be scared, we wouldn't be afraid, we wouldn't be discouraged. Pray for many of the rest of us who might not be going through something so scary, but might just be in love with the world. Pray that you would shake us up tonight, that we wouldn't be so in love with the world that we'd see that you are the good God. You're the fountain of living waters. Jesus offers us living water, fountain of living water in our hearts. He offers us a relationship with you. For many of us, we, we know what it's like to know you. We know what it's like to trust you and to seek you. I just pray that all of us would seek you, some of us for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.